question of the true love of God and what that means. So, sorry, forgive me for the glasses as well. So let's, let's open John 3.16, and I'm sure we're all going to quote it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so, sorry, I'm nervous now. <laughs> and I've lost a page, but that's okay. So, just in unpacking the scripture, I, 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 was, I was digging through, digging through the word, and I was thinking, well, what does it mean for us to really grasp this understanding? What does it actually look like in the church when we start to really get a hold of this love of God? And so I was just, I was reading through the book of First Peter, and he writes this incredible letter to the churches in Asia Minor, and in this letter, he was encouraging them, he was, he was reminding them of the gospel and reminding them of the type of life that they're living. And I think this is what a true revelation of the love of God looks like. So if we go to 1 Peter, I'm reading in the NLT. Thanks so much to the media guys that changed everything over to NLT. I'm the only one who does that, so sorry guys. But I'm reading from verse 3 and it says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you have to endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Love this bit. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. And I just think that that is an incredible view into what the life of the church looks like when we really understand the love of God. There's joy. There is this inexpressible excitement looking forward to a great reward one day. And that's what we are called to. And that's how we should be living. And so... I think the scripture, it was written by Peter, and so I think it gives us a great insight into Peter's understanding of the love of God, because he was a guy who walked with Jesus for a long time, and you can see in his walk, he, he doesn't, he was always drawn to Jesus right from the beginning, but I don't think he understood the love of God right at the start. I think it's something that he learned through his walk with him, and I think it took him a long walk to get to that point, and I love that bit of scripture when when. Jesus, after the resurrection, is speaking to him, and he says, Peter, do you love me three times? And I, think, and I think it was in that moment that Peter really understood, actually, that's the kind of love that God has for me. Jesus has that ultimate love for me. He died for me. He lived for me, and he died for me. Why can't I love him the same? I'm going off my notes, but it's just an incredible revelation, and that's where I think Peter really unpacked it. So, I've got three simple points that we're going to talk through about the love of God, and these are three revelations that I want each one of us to, to catch and maybe get a greater grasp on. Are we all together? Yes. Awesome. So the first one, 
the love of God is like no other love. And I think this is so crucial because we live in a world that offers us so many different loves, so many different whatevers, but actually none of them can compare to the love of our God. And Peter, while we're still talking about him, he had this revelation, and I, I love this bit of Scripture here. It was in my devotional the other day for, for those who may have heard it, but it's in John 6, verse 66. A whole bunch of the disciples who had been following, not the 12 disciples, but all the other disciples that were following Jesus, Jesus was giving this teaching and they were grappling with it. They didn't like it. They're like, oh, who could, who could back this kind of teaching? And lots of them left. And so Jesus turned to the disciples. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? And I love what Peter says. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And I just think that's incredible. Because it was a hard teaching. It was a teaching that they didn't understand. And so a lot of people walked away, but Peter realized, you know, actually what Jesus is carrying, Jesus is carrying something that no one else has. Jesus is carrying something that is unique. And that's the love of God that we all have. When we understand and we, we see that there is no one and nothing that can compare to the love of God in this world, I think it really shapes the way that we start to live our life when we realize that actually God's love is, is so unfathomably big and greater than any love in the world. And I think a man that understood that in the Old Testament was Abraham. So I'm going to talk a little bit about him. Abraham was the friend of God. I think that's such an incredible thing. I, could you imagine your life being summed up as Sam was the friend of God? That's, that is an incredible thing to attain to. And so Abraham, I'm going to break down three things that I see in his life that he really understood this love of God. And the first one is in Genesis 13. I kept them in chronological order, which is helpful. So at this point, Abraham was traveling with his nephew Lot. And living with family is really hard. Are we needing to swap here? Hello. Is that better? Awesome. Sorry, guys. So back on to Abraham. Abraham and Lot were traveling together. And I know a lot of us will know if we live with family, living with family is hard sometimes. And Abraham and Lot, no, 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 not my family. My family is perfect. <laughs> Abraham and Lot started to understand this thing. Listen, Flip, living with family is hard, especially when these guys, it wasn't Abraham, Lot, and the close relatives. It was the close relatives and the farmers and the sheep guys and all the cattle and the, you know what I'm saying? It was a big thing traveling together. And so Abraham said, listen, Lot, I don't want there to be this division between the two of us. We need, to we need to part ways. But what is so important and crucial about this thing, by every right, Abraham should have said, I'm going this way because I like what's happening over there. You've got to go that way. Because Abraham was older. Abraham was, the more, was in the greater position of authority. But I think Abraham really knew the love of God. And so he said, Lot, why don't you take your pick? And that's what Lot did. Lot looked over that way. He saw the Jordan, and he's like, oh, I want to go there. Nice big water, great luscious gardens. Fantastic. And so Lot walked off that way, and Abraham walked the other way. But it's incredible what happens right after. Once I find it here. 
After Lot had gone, in verse 14, after Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abraham, and I can actually just stop right there. I think that's the incredible thing. Abraham knew that irrespective of which way he went, the Lord was going with him. Lot left, and the Lord said to Abraham, and it's incredible. He promises him, look as far as you can see in every direction, north, south, east, west. I'm giving you all the land as far as you can see to you and your descendants. And it's incredible, this promise that God pours out onto Abraham. But what's more incredible to me is that Abraham made the decision before God promised. Abraham knew that whichever way I go, I'm going with the love of God in me and I'm walking where he's taking me. And so the, the what I want us to pull out of this is when we understand that God's love is like no other love, we are willing to come off second best in this world. And I want, I want us to take that from here because I, it's, it's so easy for us to want to milk everything in this world dry, but actually that's not what we call to. We're walking in the love of God and that's far better than anything that the world is going to give us. The second thing that I see in Abraham's life, that's the third one. Yeah. The second one is a little bit later, literally the next chapter. Lot has now gotten himself captured by the bad oaks, which I think is very telling. Lot, Lot was good at this, I noticed. And so Lot was captured by the bad oaks, and so Abraham was like, flip, that's my nephew, I've got to go save him. Abraham goes in with like 200 and something soldiers. It was like pathetic. He had a tiny little army, but because God was with him, they won this battle, brought Lot home. And the incredible thing that happens is right after the battle, once I find my place again. After Abraham, sorry, this is Genesis 14, 17. After Abraham returned from his victory over that oak, all and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High, brought Abraham some bread and wine, Melchizedek blessed Abraham with this blessing, and then, and then it dictates the blessing that he blessed him with. But I want to pause there very quickly. Abraham has just won a battle. He's come out victorious by the power of God, and he is approached by two parties. And it's, it's this incredible picture, because the king of Sodom, Sodom was this place that represented the world and worldliness. It was a terrible place. So he was approached by this terrible king, representative of the world, and he was approached by Melchizedek who was a king, but also a high priest. And we know another king and high priest, who is Jesus. So there's this incredible example, this display of the king of the world and the king of God's kingdom approaching Abraham. And what Abraham does is so incredible and telling of his understanding of God's love. He's blessed by Melchizedek, and he pays a tithe. He gives 10% of all, of all of his loot, bounty, whatever they got, and he pays it to Melchizedek as a representation of his allegiance to God, which is so incredible. The first thing from a victory pays over to God what, what belongs to God, honors God in that. And right after, the king of Sodom makes him this great promise. Take everything that you've, that you've won over, which I think is ridiculous. Surely if you win the battle, you take everything anyway. But this guy promises him, you can have everything, just give back my, my servants. And Abraham says, I don't want any of it. I want nothing of yours. You take it all back. Because I don't want you to be able to say that you made me rich. And it's this incredible picture that Abraham chooses to pay over to God what belongs to God and to say, I don't want your promised world because actually God is my provider. God is the one who is going to sustain me. And that's the understanding of the love of God. And that's, 
what I think we each need to take from this. The love of God provides, the love of God takes care of us, which we're getting more into later. And the third thing, which I'm going to talk through very quickly, we know this one well, is Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was the son of the promise. God, God, he, Abraham tried to make his own plan, and it didn't work, and God said, listen, no, that's not my boy. Isaac is my boy. That's who I'm blessing. And God said, now that you've got your son of the promise, Isaac, why don't we go up to the top of the mountain and sacrifice him? Flip. That must have been hectic. Because it wasn't God saying, hey, listen, sacrifice Isaac to prove your loyalty and I'll give you a new son of the promise. It's not that. Isaac was the promise. And so what Abraham had to do is not only sacrifice his son who he loved, but sacrifice his only hope of God's promise being fulfilled. And so he goes up, builds the altar, ties Isaac down, and the angel stops him, and God provides a different sacrifice. But what's incredible to me is the, the understanding there is not that God's going to make another plan for me, because Isaac was the only plan. Abraham was just convinced that, irrespective, God is faithful to his promise. And that's, and that's what we need to take from this. It doesn't matter. If Isaac was dead, I'm convinced that Abraham wasn't hoping for another child. Abraham was hoping that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's what I'm convinced of because Isaac was the promise. But he, was, he knew that God was faithful to his promise and he could trust in him. Thanks, guys. So on, on, on this note, this thing of God's love is greater than any love, I want to share a bit of my my personal revelation of, of when this, this understanding came into my life, it's cool that we're advertising our groups because it was sort of in that phase of my life. I was our grouping with Matt and Josh and it was, it was incredibly helpful for my development so I super back those things. But in that time, I was, I was in this place where I felt, I felt filthy, I felt dirty, I hated the person who I was and in that space, I discovered something about the love of God. I was reading through the book of Romans. I was like... I don't know if any of you have ever been there, probably not, but you, you're sort of hopelessly reading the Bible. Like, I'm really hoping that something changes my life because I need something to change my life. That's where I was. And actually, God is faithful and he changed my life. Because I was reading in Romans, and actually, Taryn, Taryn mentioned both of my two big scriptures last week. Thanks, Taryn. <laughs> but this scripture, it, it completely shook me. Romans 5.8, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us, while we were still sinners. And, and I just remember, I was sitting on my bed and I read that. While we were still sinners, that's crazy. That is, un, like, I can't believe, I, I felt like filth. I couldn't understand why, I understand why God would want to die for someone like my brother, who's like A-grade Christian, fantastic guy. But me, I couldn't, I couldn't get it. Because I, I felt like I was, I was not worth his love. But the revelation jumped out to me that actually it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, Jesus died for you in your sin. So the response to that and what, was, what, what welled up in me is that flip, if the love of God wants me while I'm there, I want to not be there anymore. I want to be a better man to honor that love of God. And so that, that's where in my life I came to this revelation of flip, God's love is like nothing else. So just very quickly ending off this section, the fruit of understanding that the love of God is greater than anything the world can offer is a desire to give everything of yourself to God and a drive to pursue him above all else. 
And so that's, that's the encouragement that I, want, that I want us to take from this. We want to give everything to God and pursue him above everything because actually God gave everything for us and that's the way that he loves us. So my second point, and this is a crucial one, because if you can put the John 3.16 back up there, I think this is such a crucial one because we miss this one when we read this bit of scripture. For God so loved me that he gave me his one and only son that whoever believes in that when I believe in him, I shall not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't say that. Actually, the word says, for God so loved the world. And I think that that's an incredible thing that we sometimes forget because we get caught up in this thing of, thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Thank you that you've changed my life. And he does, and I'm sure that he has. But the fact of the matter is he didn't die just for me. He died for the world. And a part of that, what it should stir in our hearts is flip. If God died for the world, I'm living in that. If Jesus died for the world, I'm living in that love. Why don't I take it to the world? There's a whole world who doesn't know this love. We need to introduce that love to them. And what's crucial is Jesus also reinforces this point. When um, he was ascending into heaven, he gives the great commission to us, well, to his disciples and to us by extension. But what's so crucial, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, which doesn't mean just Durban. It means all the nations. And I think it's so crucial that we remember that because we do... For sure, some of us, all the nations in our walk is going to be just Durban. It is going to be just the workplace. But the fact of the matter is, I think our minds need to be reminded and our hearts need to be reminded. The love of God doesn't end in Glenridge. It doesn't end in Durban. Actually, it's for everyone, everywhere. And that's what needs to burn in our heart. Even if our particular walk doesn't take us to Asia, our heart should burn for them anyway. Because that's the love of God. And who could know this more than Jesus? Jesus, I'm sure, is the only man who had the complete understanding of the love of the Father. I don't think any of us will truly get it fully until, until one day we see him, but that's what we're striving for now. But Jesus, Jesus knew this love of God. And I think the moment that displays it in so, so finally for me, in, in its completeness, is when he's hanging on the cross. He knew that he was coming to die for a sinful world. He knew that he was coming to die for bad people. But on the cross, he's hung and there's people below him throwing dice, gambling for his clothing. And he cries out to God, Lord, forgive them. Lord, forgive these oaks who've just nailed me onto a cross, who've just put me to death and are gambling for my clothes. I'm in complete humiliation by their hands. But Lord, forgive them because actually your love is still on them. And I think it's, it's just this incredible understanding. I, couldn't, I don't think I could do that, honestly. One, one, one day I'll be more like Jesus. But I mean, if someone hung me to a cross, I wouldn't be thinking, flip, I'm so glad you love these guys, Lord. <laughs> like, that's hectic. But that's Jesus. And that's what he was like. And I think it just comes down to that understanding of the Father's love. Jesus knew that the Father loves me dearly. But he loves the world enough that I'm willing to go through this for him and for them and still want to bless them and pour the love of God out onto them. The second way that I think Jesus teaches us this, and the more practical one, I wasn't super excited to teach about this because it's what I struggle with, 
The love of God is for the whole world, and that also means the people we don't like and we don't want to spend time with. The most hated people in the time of Jesus were the tax collectors, the diseased like the lepers, and the demon afflicted. No one went near those oaks. We hate the tax collectors because they steal our money. We hate the diseased guys because they're going to make us sick. And we hate the demon-possessed because they're like freaky. So we want to stay away from them, for sure. And it makes sense why people were like this, but that wasn't Jesus. Jesus ate meals with the tax collectors often. His ministry was healing people often. And he was often driving demons out of people. When I look at my life, I would say I'm seldom meeting with the people that we don't like in society. I'm seldom healing people, and I'm seldom casting out demons, which that would be kind of cooler if that was like my thing. They know, go to Sam, he's, he's the demon caster. But it's not. It's not the reality of my life, and that's actually the hard thing that we need to remember. That was Jesus' life because he knew that God's love rested on those people, rested on the tax collectors, rested on the sick, rested on the people who were afflicted because God's heart wants them back to him. In Luke 5, verse 13, sorry, let me organize this. In Luke 5, 13, there's this interaction between the Pharisees and with Jesus. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Matthew, one of his disciples, had taken him into his home, and they were, Jesus and the other disciples were having lunch with the tax collectors. And so the Pharisees walked in, because they were, they were watching Jesus, and they said, why do you eat and drink with such scum? And that's a terrible word. I was just discussing that this morning. Scum is like gross. That's a really, really rough word to call someone. Why, are you eat, why do you eat and drink with such scum? And Jesus just thought about it differently. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Jesus knew that actually, no, it might not be the most enjoyable thing to sit with the tax collectors who've got these funny ways of thinking and are stealing from people all the time but actually they need the love of God. You guys who are proud and think you have the love of God, you don't need the love of God. Well, you do, but you hear, hear, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not. The people who really need to hear his love are the people who are sick and the people who don't know his love yet. And I think my favorite example of this is, is Zacchaeus, our short king, who climbs the tree because he wants to see Jesus because he, he's not tall enough. And he sits in the tree waiting for Jesus to pass. Jesus passes and he calls him down, Zacchaeus, Come quick down, come quick, come down. I must be a guest at your home today. And what's incredible, I was reading through the story again this morning. Jesus goes, has lunch with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is completely changed. He says, I'm going to pay back everyone and then some. I'm going to change my life. I'm not going to steal from people. And he goes, runs off, and does that. The only thing Jesus said was, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home. He never said, Zacchaeus, change your ways. Zacchaeus, it's terrible the things you're doing. All he said, let me come have lunch with you. He displayed love, the love of God, to someone who didn't know the love of God. And it just revolutionized his life, completely changed him. And I think that's what we, that's what we need to see. The people most ready for the love of God are the people who don't have it in them yet. So what then does this revelation look like in our life? The fruit of this revelation is that our hearts will be shifted to stop seeing people as unlovable, instead start seeing them as people who are ready to be loved. The unlovable aren't loved, which makes them ready to be loved, and that's how we need to see people in our community, people around us, and it's hard, which is why I didn't want to talk about it, because I'm so bad at this. 
I will roll eyes at Oaks all the time at the stoplight. And it's not, it's, <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to dig a hole there. The third point, and I think this is the one that's, that's really been on my heart a lot recently, is the love of God inspires a great confidence. And it's, it's very much been on my heart because I think leading the youth, I've, I've met with a lot of guys, chatted with a lot of guys, and it's crazy to me how worried young people are about the future. It's crazy to me. Because actually, I, I feel like when you're young, you're supposed to be... I mean, we've got that stereotype. You're reckless when you're young. You just do whatever and you'll work it out later. But actually, I see the opposite. I see guys who are worried about tomorrow, worried about what's going to come. They have no peace. On Friday, we were talking about peace. We were talking about this thing. And in my small group, very few guys actually said, yeah, I'm living at peace. Very, very few. And so this thing's really been on my heart. The love of God inspires a great confidence. So what that means we're going to get into. In 1 John 4, verse 16, we know how much God loves us, and we put our trust in his love. And this is so crucial because this shakes theology from what it used to be. God is love. And I just want to make a quick point. That's completely different to saying God is a loving God. God's very nature is to love, is to, is to be loving. When we feel love in its true sense, it's actually a taste of what God is like. Love isn't its own thing. God is love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect Perfect love expels fear. The NIV says, perfect love drives out fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. God's love is without fear. And so actually, it's, it's, it's become, in my life, one of the most telling points. Am I afraid right now? Am I, am I forgetting the fullness of God's love? In general, I'm not someone who worries too much about the future, I think for the most part, um, I've, I've sort of learned to live, that, live that, um, that bit of scripture. Today's got enough problems, tomorrow can wait, that kind of thing. And so I, I say it a bit like that, but I, the truth of it is actually that I've learned the confidence in God because God is ready for tomorrow even when we're not, and God has a plan for tomorrow even when we don't. I learned this thing when I was 18, and I had just booked for my driver's test. That was a miserable, miserable time. There was one particular lady at the driver's department that I think hated me. I don't know what I did. But every time I waited in queue and I ended up at her stall and she gave me such a hard time. I don't know what it was. Maybe she didn't like my face. Maybe the way I smiled at her was not like her. But she always gave me a hard time. And so I hated the driver's department and I never wanted to go there. So I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I practiced to get my driving rights. Shame. The day before, my mom had to pay like double rates to get extra driving lessons that I could feel better about it to know that I was ready. And the whole time I remember she was telling me, Sam, you've got to trust God. It's actually in his hands. You've practiced and you've practiced. I've seen you've practiced enough. Now you just have to trust God. And I was grappling with this thing. I was praying and praying, Lord, I think it went from praying to just begging, like, Lord, please, I don't want to go back there. 
And so I went to the test. Someone had just failed, so it was already mess, messing with me, like, oh, this lady's just failed. How do I have any chance? Get in the car, do the thing, go to the, the yard. And as I'm doing my final parking, I stall. And I remember just, like, hanging my head. Dude, I've, I've just failed this thing. And what was so incredible is that, I didn't know this, you don't actually fail for a stall. You lose a lot of points, but you don't fail outright for that. And the driving instructor said to me, hey, you haven't failed. If you do this next one right, you can still make it. So get your head together and do this properly. And it was like so profound to me because these oaks, they were antagonists in my head. These oaks were like working with the enemy because they, they want you to fail. That's what I was convinced. And this guy, in this moment, he encouraged me. He said, listen, bud, you've done well so far. Focus up and do it right. And the fantastic thing is, thank you, Jesus. I did it right, got out the yard, sorted the thing, and I have my license. Thank you, Jesus. But it, it just, it changed the way I thought about things because I was stressing and stressing, what's going to happen? What if I mess it up? But before I had even got there, God had prepared the right, the right man and, settled, and prepared his heart so that he could encourage me, build me up, and actually get me through. I had no plan. There was nothing I could do. But actually, God had a plan. And God had already sorted me out in advance. And so that's the confidence that I'm talking about now. To know that God actually goes before us. And he sorted it out. And he's got a plan. Because that's the kind of way that he loves us. In the Old Testament, we look at David. Fantastic man of God. The man after God's own heart. Which I think is so telling. He must have known the love of God. Young guy, he's still a lati. Samuel comes in, blesses him, says, you are anointed to be king. Fantastic. Back out to the fields for the next few years. And so I can just imagine being David, sitting on his little rock, watching the sheep. Like, I would, I would have sat down and been miffed. Like, God, you said I was going to be king. I'm still watching these flipping sheep. But you know, what, what I reckon was actually happening is David was spending time with God. David was getting to know God. And the result of that is that things came against him while he was shepherding the sheep. There were lions and bears that attacked him. And I'm, I'm convinced he was scared because no sane human looks at a lion charging and isn't scared. But he fought those things off with his hands because he knew that God was with him. I'm sure he was scared. I don't think he was just some brave oak who was like going to do anything. I think he just knew that actually... I'm here, I've been anointed, God's got a plan for me, so he's with me now and he is going to protect me and get me through. And that's what he did. When he went up against Goliath, he said, I come at you in the name of God. Not in my strength, not in the power of my sling. Actually, he came in the name of God because he knew that God was empowering him. And, and my favorite expression of this revelation from David is when, when he was writing some of the Psalms, in Psalm 23... He says, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. David was sure. David wasn't wishy-washy. He wasn't, I hope God's going to protect me today. David knew, I am sure your goodness and love will follow me for all the days of my life. And that's God's love. And what's brilliant actually is that whether or not we grasp that revelation, his love is like that, irrespective. And so it's for us just to grasp that thing so that we can live in confidence and, yeah, not have to fear for tomorrow. So just as I'm closing, my last illustration, because it's my favorite story in the whole Bible. In the Church of Acts, they had this issue 
where the widows were not being fed properly and guys were angry. And so they picked a few guys to run the, food, the feeding scheme for the widows. And the first guy that they picked was a guy named Stephen. And every time they spoke about Stephen, it was Stephen, brackets, a man full of faith and the Spirit. And that's just incredible. They never mentioned him without reminding us he was full of faith and full of the Spirit. So he was an ordinary guy doing an ordinary job, but he was so full of God and he knew God so well. What ends up happening to him is he gets arrested on false charges. He gets put in front of the Jewish council. And instead of pleading and begging and saying, sorry, guys, I'm going to behave myself, he preached to them. He said, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And you're missing it. This is Jesus. And they were angry. They got vus with him. And so they started stoning him. This is what it says in Acts 7, verse 54. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And Stephen was killed. But you know what? He died looking up into heaven, saying, that's my Jesus. He loves me and he's waiting for me. Can you imagine living a life and dying a death just looking at Jesus, just so aware that irrespective of what's happening around me and what's happening to me, actually the Son of Man sits on the throne and he is ready to welcome me home. And so that's, that's just what I want to end on today. The love of God is a love like no other. The love of God is for the whole world, and actually the love of God inspires a great confidence. So we can live our life, walk our walk, looking into heaven, saying, Jesus, I see you there, and I know that you love me, and I know you're looking out for me. Amen. Awesome. Brilliant, eh? Well done, Sam. Outstanding. So I just, can we just, I just would love us to respond in two areas as we pray to end. One, if you've forgotten that the love of God qualifies you. That was Sam's first point. The love of God qualifies you, not you. Remember he told the story about feeling like filthy and not worthy and reading the Bible and hope. None of us do that, eh? I just read the Bible thinking, Lord, I need a word, please, just like. The love of God, you can always read the Bible, you can always get into the presence of God with boldness and confidence because of his love, not because of your love. The love of God qualifies you in Christ, number one. And number two, it's the love of God that gives you a bold confidence for the future. We have elections this year, and everybody's panicking. What, where, how? The love of God gives us confidence for the future. If you do not have the love of God, you will panic. The love of God drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Not only politically and all those things. I think of the young guys that have just finished writing matric. I mean, there's Zach and there's Joel and 
a whole bunch of them now that have just finished writing matric. They're stepping into the university world and a whole bunch of unknowns. Where's Zach and where's Joe? The love of God gives you confidence for your future, Joe. Zach, you can be confident in the love of God. Whether it's political, whether it's the first step here, or whatever it is, it's the love of God. Because God backs you. Because his love never changes. So can we just stand, please? And I'd love Sam to just pray for us as we, as we end off. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your love is incomparable. Thank you that there is no love like your love. And thank you that it's that love that qualifies us. Thank you that it doesn't matter the people we were, the people we are, but actually it's your love that matters. And so, Father, I pray that every single one of us, no matter what our space is, whatever, whatever we're dealing with, I pray that we will be reminded of your love and what that means for us. And I pray, Jesus, that as we remember your love, as we remember who you are and your faithfulness, that we can live confidently, at peace, sure about your love, your goodness, and that our future is taken care of in you. Father, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will pour out a new revelation to each one of us. Jesus, I pray that we will all leave this place with something in our hearts. Actually, your love is so much bigger than I thought. Your love is so much wider than I thought. I want to know more of your love, Jesus. I pray, that, I pray, Father, that as we encounter your love, we can go confidently, take it to the world, trust in you, and be confident in you. Amen. Wonderful, man. Sam, well done. Very, very good. Outstanding. Let me tell you right now, that was a whole lot better than my first preach ever. Let me tell you, just, just putting it out there. True story. Wonderful, guys. Let's, uh, let's focus on God. Let God